No migrants more in. No Europe without Christianity. An alliance also with Russia. Welcome to EU Scream, the podcast that guides you through stories coming from the EU. We talk about the news a bit differently and with the people who really know what they're talking about. This is episode 97. I'm your host, James Cantor, this week from the European Parliament with Terry Reinke. Good to be here. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Perfect. Very, very well pronounced. Excellent. Terry, you've been the co-leader of the Greens in the European Parliament since 2022, and you're a German Green. So that makes German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock and German Vice-Chancellor Robert Habeck close colleagues. You're in the running to be a lead candidate for the Greens in the June European elections. But what's long been interesting to me about you, Terry, is your directness when it comes to the far and the extreme right, especially when compared to the kind of bland EU norm Mm -hmm. when people talk about this stuff. We were at a dinner a couple of years ago, and I noticed you unhesitatingly using the word fascists to describe other EU lawmakers who are anti-European, populist, hard right. Most other leaders here in Brussels are more restrained. You are not, and I guess you never have been. Tell me a bit about that. Well, you see, I started being politically active, um, I think because of different issues, because of green issues, because of feminist issues, but fundamentally really because I strongly believe that as a Democrat, I have to stand up to the far right threat and to fascists that are not only threatening certain groups in society, but that I really believe are threatening the democratic societies based on freedom that we live in. So for me, it has always been one of the most important drivers in why I became politically active and why I, you know, want to be as outspoken and clear as possible about um, standing up to that. We'll come back to the F word, fascism, later. But let's dive into some related news. What is happening in Germany? And I just need to set the scene here. The mass demonstrations, around 1.4 million people out in the streets over a weekend in January. Those demonstrations came after revelations about a so-called re-migration scheme. Members of the far-right Alternative for Germany party, the AfD, and at least two members of former Chancellor Angela Merkel's Conservative Party had discussed mass deportations of, quote, non-assimilated people and those with, quote, non-German backgrounds, even if they hold residency rights and citizenship. Concerns about a return to dark times have been growing more acute And those concerns are stoked by the fact that the IFD has been polling second nationwide, is the frontrunner with more than 30% support in three states with elections this year, and is expected to gain a lot more seats in elections to the European Parliament in June, maybe around a quarter of Germany's 96 seats. That means the IFD could be replacing your delegation, the German Greens, as the second largest German delegation at the Parliament. My question, Terry... Have the revelations from Corrective, the outlet that first reported the remigration schemes, have the revelations and demonstrations that followed had an effect on the popularity of the AfD? Is all of this impacting voting intentions? Well, we have a first poll that could uh, lead to this conclusion. However, I think that it's too early to really know how this will affect the way that the far right is polling. But I think it definitely does something that is very important. And I think it reassures the the rest of the political spectrum, the Democrats, about isolating the far right and isolating the AfD. And I think that for me is maybe even the more important effect that it can have. Because, you know, when you go back in German history, the NSDAP never had more than 50% of the votes. We're talking about, we're talking about the Nazis. The Nazi party of Adolf In the Hitler. Weimar period in the in, 1920s, the, in the Weimar Republic. Yeah. In the na- late 1920s and then in the beginning of the 1930s where they polled and then also in, in, in the elections had around 30% of the votes. So the way that they got into power was not by winning a majority in the, uh, in the parliament, but 
with the support, for example, of conservative, but also some liberal forces in the Weimar Republic. And I think the lesson that we have to draw from this as Democrats, and I'm not only talking about Germany, I'm talking about everywhere, is that we can never underestimate the readiness of the far right once they are in power to take away freedoms, to take away democracy, to take away rule of law. And thus then create a situation where you cannot win back the power anymore. So for me, the fundamental thing is about isolating the far right because we know that fundamentally these people do not believe in the liberal democracy that we have built. And this is why uh, we are going to stand up to them. And so let's talk more about what it means when it comes to isolating the far right and the IFD in particular. Where do you and, and the Greens stand on, say, the question of bans, the question of banning the IFD or other legal restrictions or restrictions on the sort of funding that political parties can have access to? Let me start by saying I think the first way, of course, we have to fight the far right is politically. So politically isolating them and standing up to what they are saying, debunking the, the conspiracy theories that they are pushing for and the devaluation of certain groups of society, all of this. So for me, this is always the first task that all Democrats have. But yes, in the German constitution, and I believe rightfully so, there is a possibility also against the backdrop of German history um, to prohibit, to ban political parties when they are proven to be against the democratic order of Germany. That has to be proven. The barrier to prove that is quite high. You have to go to the constitutional court. And we know that one party, the NPD, which is a sort of truly a neo-Nazi party, they prevailed actually in a case like that because they were found to be very small. True. And beforehand, there was a situation where I believe also mistakes were made by the internal intelligence about um, people who had given information from inside of the party. So indeed, the procedures ha have very high barriers. And again, also rightfully so. Um, but I mean, in German history, there are actually two cases where parties were prohibited, uh, a communist party and uh, uh, a, a far right party. This was already a while ago um, in, in the 50s. But um, the point that I'm trying to make is that if there is to be a procedure for the banning of a far-right party, for example, the AFD, it has to be prepared very well because we cannot go into this procedure without being sure that we will in the end prevail. So I think now there is a process of checking whether there is this ground and whether it is going to be possible. So this is where we stand. I think it's it's absolutely legit to do that, but then we will have to see whether one of the, the organs of the constitution, which I believe is the parliament, the Bundesrat, which is the, um, the second chamber, which is representatives from the, from the states, or the government to uh, propose such a ban in front of the constitutional court. Right. So, very, so you're open to the pathway of a ban. I mean, one of the things about the process that you're talking about is that it just it's going to take a really long time. It is, it is. So we cannot believe that, for example, in the next months, um, this would already be concluded because obviously there will be a pre-procedure where the constitutional court actually assesses whether there are grounds for looking closer at it. But then the procedure itself, it's pretty much looking at the evidence that the authorities, for example, would bring, but also the party in question would have the right to defend themselves. So this would take a while. So no, for the European elections coming up and also for, you know, the, the, the state elections that you were mentioning before, this is not a ban that, that could be already in place. So right now, I think we have to check whether there is ground for it and then always and, you know, whether it's now or in the future, of course, um, politically fight against uh, the far right. And that's generally the, the Greens position in Germany as well. I think that with the, with the current demonstrations, with the people in the streets, with civil society really pushing for this, because James, it's not something that came from political parties. It is something that regular citizens pushed for. We have now petitions where hundreds of thousands of people are asking authorities to start this procedure. So even my own position on this, I think, has become more open over the past weeks and months. The readiness to use this 
as we say in German, in a, a defense-ready democracy, wehrhafte Demokratie, that's the word, that the, the expression that we are using, I think has become much more likely. And I think um, it's also something that obviously is due to the really massive demonstrations that we have seen. You have said 1.4 million people in one weekend, but it's not something that is ending. And you know what is the most interesting part about the demonstration? I guess a lot of people have seen the pictures from Berlin, from Cologne, from Hamburg, where you had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. But it's also in really small cities in the middle of nowhere. These are villages that I have never heard of in my life. And there are people, sometimes hundreds of people, demonstrating against the far right also in places where in the last elections they have done really well. So it's very brave of these people to go to the streets. And I think that this really gives us as politicians and as parties also a much higher pressure to really look at, is this a possibility that we can go for? Again, the barriers are high. We have to be sure. But for me, with these millions of people in the streets, yes, I think we have to look at it much more closely. In a sense, what you're saying is that your thinking on this has evolved. So a ban becomes more publicly accepted, if you like, more, more thinkable. It's a process in terms of also the societal awareness of what the AfD is. Because I can remember that I was in a lot of election debates I was still arguing with people whether this is even a far-right party, you know, aren't they just national conservative, aren't they maybe right-wing populist, but not really far-right, far-right in the sense of, you know, being close to Nazism, to fascism. And I think what we have seen, not only by the uh, corrective invest investigative uh, research that you have mentioned, but also in the past month and years now, um, that there is more and more proof that it's a far-right party, it's a fascist party that has very close links to organized far-right groups that are very openly arguing to end the democratic order, that are sometimes even speaking about, you know, we, if this is not going to be possible democratically, um, then we will, you know, use other means to make it possible. So this kind of rhetoric, so the AfD has moved closer to these groups. And, and I think that, that this is important, if you look at a lot of former people who had joined the AfD but then gotten out of it because they felt that it had radicalized too much, they can also be a source of proof of evidence saying, look, fundamentally, this party is not standing on the grounds of the constitution in Germany. And that is why we have to do everything we can uh, to stop them from getting into power. So we're in Brussels, of course. We're in the European Parliament. And the AfD, the Alternative for Germany, the party we've been talking about, are part of the very hard right identitarian group in the European Parliament. Polls showed that overall, this identitarian group could win an additional 30 seats to become the third largest in the Parliament after the Conservatives and the Socialists. My question, Terry, what should, what can the Parliament do in this scenario if there are, I don't know, 25 members of the IFD and the European Parliament and a much larger ID group. And I want to say that the received wisdom is that if a member state like Germany says a party is legal, then it's really not for the European Parliament or for the EU to step in in the matter or to say otherwise. Indeed, the received wisdom is that any action from Brussels would just kind of aid the IFD in its narrative of victimhood. And that just feels kind of unsatisfying. <laughs> it does. I mean, first of all, I think what we have to do in the next month as all democratic parties is to prevent the scenario that you have outlined now from happening. Because if there are more far-right MEPs in the European Parliament, this is going to make working in this parliament much more difficult. But even if this were to happen, what I believe will be crucial is that the pro-European democratic groups, and I mentioned the conservatives and liberals uh, as I think very specific examples of groups where we have to remind them of the importance of not working together with the far right and why they're historic examples of how this has gone wrong to isolate the far right. And I mean, now we already have a group, uh, the ID group, that has uh, around 70 members. We 
have a cordon sanitaire. So we are keeping them out of negotiations, for example. And I think that this is a way to not have them influence legislation on a European level. But yes, you're right. If, for example, there is a procedure started in Germany, the AfD is part of a, of a European political family, I think also on a European level, we should check, is there a ground? And I mean, the fundamental question there is, are these people openly calling uh, to go against Article 2 of the treaties, which is the foundation of the European Union, which is values like rule of law, democracy, freedom, um, fundamental rights, including especially of minorities, then I think we should also check whether there is a possibility to do the same on the European level. There could be kind of parallel procedures in that sense. Exactly. So yeah. you could also use, I believe, evidence that you found in these two processes. However, I mean, the procedure on the European level is a parallel or like a, a separate procedure, which I think can obviously interact with something that is happening on the member state level but they are not necessarily connected with each other. Is there any precedent for that? A, a kind of examination of political parties that are part of extremist groups in the, well, groups in the parliament that appear to be extremist, where we have this kind of inquiry? Not that I know of. Yeah, and I mean, we should say as well that <laughs> one of the other key parties in the ID group is Marine Le Pen's mm -hmm. Rassemblement National. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about extreme right parties here that are very much on the verge of power, in that case in France. I mean, it would be a very interesting scenario to have the ID group looked at more carefully because you would have a party like Marine Le Pen's party also under the microscope. Absolutely. So I think that the way that this would then go about is to look at the member parties, but also to look at the European political party, because the basis, I would assume that the court would have to, to see proven is to say that the political, the European political party is going against these values that are laid out in Article 2. So to to look at the member parties, but also to look at the structure on the European level. Um, and I think that they have been um, several inquiries that were not based on the question of Article 2, but that were based in general on the question of, for example, financial management. But of course, I think we always have to make sure at the same time that all political parties also on the European level stand on the democratic basis that we, we ask of in, in democracies. Democracies, modern liberal democracies, are not only about winning majorities. You are not suddenly becoming a Democrat just by being democratically elected. You have to also commit to fundamental rights of all citizens. You have to commit to an order that is based on rule of law, that, for example, foresees separation of power, the independence of judiciary. This is a fully-fledged functional democracy, a democratic order as we understand it, for example, in Article 2, but also in the German constitution. So solely winning a majority doesn't make you a democrat. And I think that this is an important lesson that we have to learn, not only, but also from, from the German example. From the 1920s and 30s. From the 1920s and 30s. I think that it also can give us a lot of guidance in how do we deal with the situation right now. However, and this is an important point for me, James, obviously the problem of racist attitude, of homophobia, of sexism, of, you know, a lot of other issues are not going to go away by banning a party. You take a structure away, you take funding away. But the deeper lying problem of why people, for example, believe conspiracy theories, how disinformation campaign works, what is the kind of distrust in democratic systems that we have to deal with, this is not dealt with by prohibiting a party. So I think we have to go deeper into asking ourselves, how do we also tackle these issues and what do we have to do? Because at the end of the day, um, we want to convince people why living in democracies is the better way of, you know, form of societies. And when we talk about minority rights, we're also talking about LGBTQI. Mm -hmm. And for you, that's very close to your heart, very much your heart. You're in a same-sex partnership. Mm -hmm. You post on the internet, uh, you and your partner kissing. I mean, it just seems normal now, but it's not being seen as that by these groups of people who are in these movements. 
You know what really shook me? When we heard that in Italy now, what they're going to do is erase the names of lesbian co-mothers from the birth certificates of their children. I mean, this is happening as we speak. And I mean, I don't have children yet, um, but you're right. I'm a very visible, I'm in a very visible lesbian relationship uh, with a wonderful woman who is a French senator, the most fantastic French senator, I must say. You're, let's face it, you're a European green power couple. Melanie, <laughs> if you want to call us that. <laughs> Melanie Vogel, your partner, is a, is a French green senator. She is, and she's fantastic. Um, but I mean, imagining for me that we'd have a child and then one of us would be taken out of the birth certificate of our child, this just shakes me to the core, you know. My family is my everything for me. And to believe that a state can then take away this link that you have and I don't know. To me, this is really, this again was one of the moments when I really thought we cannot just stand by and let this happen because people are losing their rights. They are losing the security of their lives. And I mean, for me, next to a lot of other arguments, there is also a very personal reason why I believe it is important that, that we stand up to the far right because I'm afraid for, you know, my own future in the way that the LGBTI community could be attacked. So many people that I love, you know, I call them all my siblings, even though I only have one sister who is also one biological sister who is also fantastic. Um, but yes, there is a very personal dimension to this for me. But hating the LGBTI community, for some it might be an end in itself, but very often it is used as a distraction from, for example, you know, the Hungarian government taking away the independence of the judiciary, but instead of discussing about that in society you have these kind of issues that that they blow up like you know lgbti people that will fill your mailbox with you know stuff on lgbti and gender theory it, but meanwhile we'll dismantle exactly that stuff over so there. basically the whole public discussion is yeah. around the question whether lgbti people are a threat to children yeah. which i mean what a fucking debate. Like, you know, I, I'm really, I'm really fed up constantly having to explain that the fact that I'm in a relationship with a woman is not a threat to any child. You know, it doesn't scare children. One more thing on the next European Parliament. One of the things that people say is a real test is whether the IFD and the ID group and even for that matter, more members of the ECR group, but primarily the IFD and the ID group will be given the big jobs inside of the next parliament. Report writing, being a rapporteur, uh, committee chairs, for example, with real power over how decisions get made here. Are we going to see that? I will do everything to prevent that from happening. And I still hope that the Democrat, pro-European democratic groups in this house will stay on this, on this path. So when we talk about the cordon sanitaire inside the European Parliament, that is perhaps the first test. Exactly. So right now with the ID group, we have an understanding that, you know, when it comes to committee chairs, because these are elected positions. So it's not like you have a Dehon system and then this person automatically gets into that position. But the committee is electing the chair. And there are usually arrangements between the democratic groups that according to the size, they are going to get these chairs. But right now we have a situation where the democratic groups don't vote for ID candidates. So then there is a, another candidate from, from one of the other groups and that person is elected. And even if the scenario that you have outlined is true and the ID group is going to become bigger, maybe even the third biggest group in this house, I would definitely continue this model because I think they have proven and actually in the past years they have become more radical in this. So for me having an IFD person becoming a committee chair in the European Parliament where as you say they can very strongly influence legislation, decision making. I don't don't want the parliament and the democratic group to, groups to let that happen. I mean, obviously, it still depends on the outcome of the election. We will see how big the problem is going to be. But I very much hope that we can keep the cordon sanitaire alive. And for that, it will need especially the EPP to stay on course there. How do we say cordon sanitaire in German? We say Brandmauer nach rechts. Firewall. Firewall. I mean, in German, Brandmauer means firewall. So... 
Um, that's that's yeah. the traditional wording that we would use. Even though I also really like cordon sanitaire, to be honest. Just an anecdote here. Back in 2014, you were, a, I think, a first-term MEP. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. were just joining the, the European Parliament. You were, even then, identifying AFD members as sort of beyond the pale. You said in a video that you'd be, quotes, angry, and it was, quotes, annoying, sitting next to, quotes, weird people, like then-AFD member or AFD member Beatrix von Stork. Dynastic title, Her Highness Duchess Beatrix Amelie Erengard Eilika of Oldenburg. That video. Can I add one thing about yeah. her? You know that she, you know, I mean, you cannot, you don't have responsibility for your family, but you know that she's a granddaughter of a Nazi minister. She was a, her, her grandfather was a minister, finance minister under Hitler. But yeah, just as an, as an additional information. Your comments got heavily criticized by a prominent journalist, Jochen Bittner. He wrote that you were, quotes, thinking illiberally about von Storck's, quote, possibly, possibly reactionary view of the family. Now, and this is my point, Terry, it was von Storck who just two years later, after your video, after this incident that led Bittner to write that article, it was von Storck who said that German border patrol had the right to shoot irregular female migrants, including those accompanied by children. You were right. Well, I'm not going to say it now, James, because I think um, it's quite obvious for people um, whether, you know, it was it was adequate to talk about uh, Beatrix von Storch as being a far-right politician and, by the way, also really openly anti-LGBTI and homophobic. But these kind of arguments that you are showing with, you know, the journalist basically criticizing me for, for saying this out openly and for calling a spade a spade, basically, show how long it took for a lot of people also in Germany to understand the danger that the far right and parties like the AfD are posing to our democracies. It goes back to how this behavior is indicative of that larger project. Exactly. And I think that, I mean, you have these cases where Beatrix von Storch and she has been so openly anti-LGBTI. She has said horrible things about trans people, also about refugees, asylum seekers. So she's a case where you can very, very clearly see it. But, and I'm, I'm really, I, I think we have to be aware of that, they're always going down a double strategy. So they have people that are very outspoken about these things, but then they also have the people that then go on the media giving interviews. They are trying to appeal on the one hand to maybe a more bourgeois kind of clientele where they have people saying, no, look, um, all of these like very hateful and racist positions that some of our members have been taking. This is not the majority view. So they are trying to sugarcoat basically playing everything down and saying, no, these are just minority views and they're not representing the majority views inside of the party. So I think we also have to call that out, that we have to be aware that these parties very often give themselves, in German we say they are like a, a wolf in a, a sheep, in, yeah. a, in a sheep's wool, so wolf im schafspelz, because they obviously know that in a democratic order, certain kind of positions, certain kind of statements are going to be very closely monitored. But, and I think with the AfD, I mean, people can look at the map. Now the German internal intelligence says that three of their, uh, of their state associations are clearly far right, right wing extremists. So it's not my wording anymore. It's the internal intelligence in Germany, which is not really known to be very left-wing or, you know. So I think that we are really beyond the point where you can argue that there isn't a fundamental problem with fascists, with Nazis in the AfD. I don't think we can be having this conversation in 2024 without at least briefly touching on Gaza. Let me try and frame a question here. Where, where do you stand? Where do the Greens stand on whether Germany's efforts to atone for its fascist and racist crimes in the Holocaust, this unpayable debt, right, that Germany owes to Judaism, may nonetheless be leading Germany down the wrong path. For instance, cracking down on pro-Palestinian rallies, any signs of support, and these widespread instances of censorship of pro-Palestinian views. Well, 
I would say that obviously Germany and Israel are always going to have a very special relationship. I also think that there are other countries that because of historical reasons have other very strong affiliations that I think you always have to see in a context. I think that a lot of the things, well, that you were mentioning, like, you know, in Berlin, there was this very far reaching prohibition of pro-Palestinian demonstrations that clearly went far. At the same time, I also clearly want to say that going to the streets and celebrating massacres like the one that happens on the 7th of October, I don't have to explain again how horrible it was, is also something that has to be unacceptable. And the fact that, for example, organizations that are very closely affiliated with Hamas, that they will have to face exactly the same scrutiny that we were speaking about uh, when it comes to the far right. Are you really in favor of human rights for all? Did you have an intent of specifically killing Jewish people? Are you calling for violence? And so on and so on. I think that this also has a very important um, meaning. And this is why I would say we have to find a line. And this line cannot be, you cannot show your sympathy for Palestine to become a state, for example. But I think that when it comes to incitement of hate and incitement of terrorism, this is also something that the authorities have to go against. Let's talk more about the business of calling somebody the F-word, a fascist. Who is the target audience, really, when you're calling someone a, a fascist? Is it the fascists themselves or is it everyone around them? For example, the people who don't object to those people because nobody else is speaking up? Is it something that we sometimes do because it just serves our own sense of calling something out when something needs to be called out? And you are right. And I think for me, you don't become more anti-fascist by just calling everyone a fascist. I don't think that that's how it works. And for me, there is also a line that is to be drawn. And I think there are, for example, problematic people, really um, nationalists, sometimes racist people that are members of center-right parties, that are members of liberal parties, that are members of social democratic parties. But I'm not going to start calling those parties fascist parties because I don't think that, that this is the, the point that I'm trying to make. For me, the important thing to outline, and especially also by calling out when there is a fascist structure, is that these parties are not parties like anyone else. The IFD is not just a more right-wing democratic party in a political landscape. Whereas I can very clearly say that about the German conservatives, even if I disagree with them, James, on a lot of things. And really also they haven't been on the forefront when it comes to LGBTI rights, when it comes to minority rights. So I have a lot to criticize for them. But I don't think that it's in any way useful um, for me to make the group of those who I call fascists bigger and bigger and bigger. The fact that the AfD now, for example, is a fascist party and has very clearly a fascist agenda and, you know, also wants to disable the basis of our democracies has been proven. So it's not, you know, it's not something but, that I say lightly. It's something that I have thought about and made up my mind about. But I guess the question is, you know, who is our audience when we're doing this? Because so many people in the newspapers uh, in the chamber of the parliament, they just come back and say, oh, come on, that's cancel culture. You know what, in Germany, because I very openly call myself anti-fascist. So sometimes, now and again, uh, there is a debate in Germany where also some liberals, some conservatives, but also some maybe social democrats also from the Greens say, yeah, but shouldn't we use a different term? And we all Shouldn't we do a better job of understanding why people, you know, support the extreme parties in the first place? So don't alienate them by calling their leaders bad words. No, but even more than that, like, you know, isn't anti-fascism a too strong of a word? You know, like, is this really what what we should call ourselves? And I say absolutely yes. Because the very basis of democracy is anti-fascism. I mean, if there is a country in which this should be absolutely crystal clear, it's Germany. So for me, being an anti-fascist doesn't make you left-wing, for example. I would say that conservatives who fight for, a, you know, democracy that is based on fundamental rights and freedom are anti-fascist. And you could see that in these demonstrations, you really had the center of the society going to the streets. So how do we reclaim this term and say, 
This is not about whether you're left-wing or right-wing. This is about being a Democrat, being an anti-fascist, and defending living in free and democratic societies. And this is what being an anti-fascist means for me. There's another element to this, which is that perhaps other Europeans, particularly in the European Parliament, maybe don't have the same appreciation of the importance of the word and the importance of anti-fascism as the basis of democracy the Germans do. I think that there is obviously a specific narrative in Germany, which I also understand where it comes from, but I think it fundamentally stays true wherever you go. The German Greens are in government with basically all democratic parties somewhere, you know? We are in coalition with the liberals, with the conservatives, with the left, with the social democrats in, in different ways. And sometimes people are like, yeah, but isn't that a little bit, you know, exchangeable? And I'm like, no, as Democrats, we try to find compromise. Sometimes it's more difficult with parties that are further away from us. And sometimes it's easier. But we all believe that in a democracy, Democrats can go together into coalition in different models, in different ways. This is not like inviting the AFD into a coalition. No, That's what you're saying. We, we can work together as Democrats in different ways, but never, never under no circumstance with the far right. And that is what anti-fascism means for me. Keep the far right from power. And if I can make one reflection still, I think I grew up as a child when I learned what had happened in the in the Third Reich and when I learned what had happened in the Weimar Republic that led to that. And obviously I asked myself the question, why did so little people stand up to, to the Nazis gaining more and more power, getting into government, then taking over, you know, with a dictatorial act and the full power of the Republic? Why wasn't there more opposition to this? Why in my own family there were people who just let this happen? I mean, this is a question. This is a fundamental question that is following me my whole life. And for me, this question is on the table again. And that that's what never again means. Because it's true, just because we believe that we are more educated today or that we have more access to information or whatever, our democratic institutions are more stable, all of this might be true, but it can happen again. And I will not again be one of the people standing on the sideline looking and watching it happen. I will raise my voice and I will do everything I can to prevent it from happening. Are there relatives of yours, specifically in your family, that you would like to go back to and have words with? All of them? <laughs> no, I mean, I know very little. My family, they were very simple people, you know? So it's not really that anybody was active in the NSDAP or that I know of. It's also that I know very little, to be honest. But I don't live in the illusion that a lot of Germans apparently live in that my family was in the forefront of resistance. So I think that this for me was always a very strong driver behind, okay, apparently I cannot change the fact that maybe people in my family did not take such a strong position back in the 20s and 30s, but I can do it differently today. That's what I can do. That's the responsibility that I have. And I'm going to continue to take that responsibility. It's kind of a side note, but I'm always struck by the way the European Greens and the U.S. Green Party really don't seem to have the same priorities, particularly on Russia and Ukraine. The U.S. Greens want a ceasefire in Ukraine and see the conflict through this lens of NATO's provocation of, of, of Russia. The U.S. Greens were also part of the U.S. Senate probe into Russian election interference in 2016. But the German Greens... Your, your party in particular are among the strongest packers of Kyiv. And your party as well was part of the effort to overturn Germany's longstanding opposition to sending mm -hmm. weapons abroad. Mm -hmm. Help me understand this. Obviously, we don't see eye to eye on this. And in the European Greens, and you're mentioning the German Greens, but I think like it's across the board. This has been a very longstanding conviction. So it's something that maybe became more visible in with the invasion of Ukraine and then also the weapons delivery and the whole debate about this. But the question of how basically Russia is threatening the independence and the freedom of Europeans, I think this has been a point that we have been making for a very long time. And let me add this. I think it is obviously a question of security, but this is very closely linked with questions, for example, of 
being dependent on Russian fossil fuels. Because the Green Deal at the end of the day, obviously we are pushing for it because of reaching the climate goals. But the point of it is also that we want to be more independent from cheap gas from Russia. And I think this always in the German Greens, but I would say across Europe in the Green parties has given a very strong synergy between on the one hand saying we cannot be dependent on fossil fuels because of the climate implications, because of the environmental implications. And at the same time, we see that Russia is more and more moving towards becoming a full-on dictatorship again. And this is also... Based on fossil fuel exports. Exactly. Funded by pipelines. Exactly. And, yeah. So an oligarch structure where, um, you know, you sell fossil fuels to other countries and basically on the wealth that comes from that, um, build an autocratic regime that is taking away people's democratic rights and freedoms. While at the same time, an imperial attempt of conquering... Countries like, for example, Ukraine again. So to me, these two issues have always been very closely related in the debate in the European Greens. And this is why, I mean, as somebody who was active in both the German Green, but also the European Green Party, everything that happened over the past years really didn't, like, it didn't shake me or, you know, it didn't, I wasn't like, oh my God, we really changed course on this, you know, because it, it had already been debated for a very long time. Well, keeping the Green Deal going is going to be, the European Green Deal is going to be even harder if the European Parliament turns out to have the composition that the polls are suggesting. Mm -hmm. You're right. However, I sometimes think we cannot make the mistake of already right now trying to look into the abyss and then thinking, okay, it's all going to be horrible and we are going to have a very big far-right group. Because I think that now we see that after a long period of far-right parties being normalized, also becoming bigger in a lot of member states, what is happening in Germany, but also in other places, like, for example, in Poland, where a democratic alliance of opposition parties has won the elections. We see again and again that, yes, there is a threat, that we have a push to the right in the European elections, but also in other national elections that we are going to see. But also we have very good examples of where democratic forces, progressive forces stood up to that and then won. So for me, of course, we have to talk about the danger, but we also have to see that it's still up to us to find the strength and the energy to mobilize the people. And I'm very, very convinced the majorities of our societies are on our side in this to stand up to this search of the far right. How much should we be concerned about a new kind of majority in the European Parliament, one that we perhaps haven't seen before, where the uh, conservatives team up with some of these far-right parties and perhaps with the liberals, the conservative wing of the liberals, and they themselves form a majority? Because at this point, there's a question for more progressive forces and uh, who have a different vision of the future, which is... Do we go into opposition for the first time and just say, you know what, we're not going to cooperate at all? I think that there is a danger that this could happen. And we have seen Manfred Weber saying certain things when he was, you know, basically hinting at the fact that there could also be more right wing coalitions built or coalitions majorities. Um, well, he has these talks going on with... You know, Meloni and uh, the, the, the brothers and, yeah. of Italy. And so for me, I would say there is a threat. Again, I'm, I, you know, we are before an election campaign. We don't know how the majority are going to be, but there is a threat of that. And I'm going to be very, very clear about it, that I think that this is a huge danger because it's completely going to change the way how we form majorities in this house. And there is one thing that has always been fundamentally consensual between the constructive groups, and that is that this is a house where pro-European Democrats make legislation for European citizens. And if that would change, then destructive forces would have a possibility of having much more leverage and influence on decision-making. And that's not only a danger for the Green Deal or whatever policy proposal, it is a danger for 
basically not having a constructive way, good faith way of finding decisions. And why would you, why would you want to be part of that? Yeah. Well, I certainly, I can completely, uh, uh, um, say that under no circumstances we would be part of that. But then you imagine the socialists who have always had big jobs in the parliament, in the commission, would they really go into opposition? You know, if indeed this scenario emerges where you have the conservatives in league, in bed with the hard right. I think we have to prevent it from happening. And there the European citizens have a say in June when we have the European election. So fundamentally it will also be about do people you know is there going to be a big surge of the far right are they going to have majorities that they can potentially form or do we keep pro-european progressive majorities in this house and of course i have a hope of which direction the european election is going to go into and i'm going to fight for it but i cannot give you a guarantee in either way But let me make one last point. I think right now we are seeing in the European Council what you end up with when you are not capable in a lot of fields and questions to have constructive decision-making anymore. Because of unanimity in Council and Viktor Orban basically having a veto right and being able to blackmail the rest of the European Union. If we had a situation where in the European Parliament we were also not able to constructively discuss, I mean, disagree, but then try to find a compromise in good faith, understanding each other's points, if a second institution of the European Union would also be in that situation, I think moving ahead with literally anything would become much more difficult. And I think that's why... I really, really hope that we can stay on a constructive pro-European path because otherwise with the changing world, with the US elections coming up, with, you know, things that might go in a bad way, I'm very, very pessimistic that the European Union will be ready to to live up to the challenges. So I will fight for keeping uh, a pro-European majority. You do not want immobilized EU institutions under those circumstances. Exactly, exactly. Very, very last thing, the the manifesto that's upcoming in Lyon, is there anything that you can tell me about it? It's an interesting question because the Greens at the European Parliament and the Greens in the German government, they don't always have the same priorities. And I'm thinking here of how the German Greens in government in Berlin went along with keeping combustion uh, engine cars on the road past 2035, keeping the pesticide glyphosate on the market pursuing checks on migrants at external borders, including on women and children. So it's it's no mean feat to come up with a manifesto uh, if you're a German you green know, leader. James, you're mentioning now points. I mean, on the combustion engine, I can really tell you that the Greens also really fought for the proposal from the from the commission and the, the proposal, the, the compromise that we had then found between the parliament and the council. I think that what we should not confuse is positions that, and not only the German Greens, I mean, we are in a number of EU governments, positions that then come out of the convoluted and brought together government position that can sometimes be positioned because, I mean, in Berlin, they have to find compromise between three coalition partners, the same in Dublin, in in Belgium, there are seven. So this is then a government position. And yes, Greens are part of that government but it doesn't mean that it's the green position. So I would say what you are describing now, of course, topics where, where greens took a, a certain position. And there, I don't think that the European and the, and the German perspective was so different. The conflict came then with the government position that was also diverging from the German green position. And one of the things within that is there's all this talk of how, well, part of the problem with the Greens and why they may lose seats is that they overestimated the readiness of citizens to actually pay the price of what it takes to go to a fossil-free economy. There is a cost involved here. And somehow, maybe going as fast as we're going is not fast enough for the science but it seems to be a little bit too fast for all the politicians to accept and for citizens to accept if the costs are higher. We are not doing any of these policies because the Greens 
like them or because the Greens want them. We are doing these policies. We are having the Green Deal, the, the proposals, the regulation that is on the table. Heat pumps, electric cars. <laughs> I mean, for a reason, because we have signed up to the Paris goals. And again, not only because we felt that we need to have some international agreement on this, but because our future on this planet is at stake. So for me, you know, we have droughts, we have floodings, we have forest fires. Climate change is not something that is far away. It is something that is already happening today. And that's why these policies, and yes, we have to do them in a socially just way, and you are right. Uh, we have to do them in a way that we can get the citizens on board. But we have to do them because they are in our own self-interest. And that is, I think, what we need to get across in this campaign. And then I still very strongly believe a big majority of our societies are in favor of reducing CO2 emissions. They're in favor of smart solutions, of a net zero economy, of, you know, using less pesticides, less pollution. I mean, it's a campaign. We are going to make our case. We will see how then in June uh, the citizens are going to, to vote. But this will be the spirit that I will go into the election campaign with. That's it for this episode. But one more thing before you go. We've just created an easier way to become a material supporter of EU Scream. It's simple. You look for EU Scream at patreon.com and you pledge what you can monthly. Now, as you probably know, EU Scream is nonprofit journalism. We might occasionally do partnerships and take advertising, and we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. But here's the thing. We need your support to bring you more content more regularly. And there are a lot of you already listening. After all, there's a lot to talk about. From the EU's troubled borders, to accelerating climate change, to whether we control AI or it controls us. It's your support that helps us delve into how the EU is responding to these issues, with people who really know what they're talking about. Small donations to large ones, it's all incredibly appreciated. It also helps when we get a five-star rating at Spotify or a review at Apple Podcasts. And passing on episodes to family members, colleagues, and friends, that's yet another great way to show support. For more details and for more EU Scream, do please visit euscream.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>